Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome, everyone, to the Heritage Foundation for our event on the ethics of uh, free markets and uh, discussion of capitalism. And this is the 11th talk in our speaker series on the ethics of free markets. I encourage anyone who has missed the other 10 talks to take a look at our website at www.heritage.org slash free dash markets. Uh, for folks who may have missed that, it was a little bit complicated, www.heritage.org slash free dash markets. When you ask students around the world, what is the most uh, pressing problem that economics should be addressing? Some of the top topics that come up are inequality, poverty, unemployment, the environment, and the sustainability of scarce resources. And sure enough, this series has thus far addressed virtually all of these topics, and we have more talks to come through the course of 2019. We've also discussed the importance of culture in producing economic and ethical outcomes, and the importance of private property, uh, uh, freedom, and the role of institutions such as think tanks, universities, and media, media at promoting certain economic principles and the practical aspects of markets apart from just efficiency, such as helping the poor and promoting learning. And this morning, we're going to hear in the next uh, speaker, uh, David Burton, on the fairness of political systems that enforce certain distributions of income, wealth, and economic outcomes. This is an especially critical topic uh, today as uh, this uh, is uh, virtually left out of all discussions on uh, capitalism and socialism uh, that also revolve around the topics of fairness. Uh, David Burton is a senior fellow in economic policy at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. He focuses here on tax matters, securities law, regulation, administrative law issues, entrepreneur entrepreneurship, and the efficacy and ethics of free markets. Before, before joining Heritage, uh, he worked as general counsel at the National Small Business Association, he was chief financial officer and general counsel at a startup, uh, Alliance for Retirement Prosperity, a conservative alternative to AARP. And for 15 years, he was partner at uh, the uh, Argus Group, a law and public policy and government relations firm. There, he provided legal advice to small and medium-sized businesses and lobbied for free market or small business causes. He was vice president of finance and general counsel for the New England Machinery, a multinational manufacturer of packaging equipment and testing instrumentation. Uh, so he's also uh, got real-world experience, as we would say. Uh, he was also manager of the U.S. Uh, Chamber of Commerce's Tax Policy Center. So please join me in welcoming David to the podium. Thank you, Paul. And I'm glad to be able to talk to you today. My aim today is to explain why the pursuit of economic equality is unjust. I'll discuss uh, progressive and socialist ideas about economic or distributive justice. I'll also examine conservative, classical, liberal, and libertarian ideas about economic justice. 
I'll discuss what we mean by equality and what we should mean. I'll offer an ethical critique of socialism and an ethical defense of free enterprise. This is a large subject, and my discussion will necessarily be abbreviated. Uh, but I look forward to discussing the issues in greater detail during the question and answer session after my presentation. I'd also like to mention that I hope to publish three papers on this general area over the next two months. The first will be a comparison of free enterprise and socialism, both on economic and ethical grounds. The second will be economic equality is unjust, uh, the core of which is going to be talked about today. And the third will be an examination of differing conceptions of economic or distributive justice. Now, I want to start by posing seven questions about ordinary daily fact patterns that may make you begin to wonder whether the uncritical pursuit of economic equality is always just. Is it fair, equitable, or just that someone that works 80 hours a week should be paid the same as someone that works 40 hours a week, or someone who can work but doesn't chooses not to work at all? Should someone who has a dangerous or unpleasant job be paid the same as someone who has a safe or pleasant job? Should someone who works hard and does what their employer needs to be done be paid the same as someone who shirks responsibility and does as little work as possible? Should someone who is experienced, knowledgeable, and competent be paid the same as someone who isn't? Should someone who prepared for a profession, paying tens of thousands of dollars in tuition and studying for years without compensation, be paid to someone the same as someone who has not? Should someone who risks years of effort and potentially their own capital for little or no compensation to launch a business that brings a beneficial new product to market be compensated the same as someone who took bears little risk? Should a person who defers consumption by saving and investing for the future earn the same as someone who never saves? Now, the intuitive sense of distributive justice raised by these questions is that it's unjust to treat unequal situations equally. It's the sense that justice requires that goods, both material and intangible, be distributed on the basis of merit or contribution or what is deserved or just deserts, however defined. And that justice involves individual actions rather than a given distribution to be predetermined and enforced by the state. In other words, how or why someone earns income or wealth matters morally. As the University of Illinois philosophy professor Samuel Fleischecker said in his very interesting book, A Short History of Distributive Justice, this understanding of distributive justice was virtually unquestioned until the 18th century. You can find it by reading Aristotle's Ethics or St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theological or Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments or countless other works. Now, modern liberals, progressives, and socialists largely reject this view. John Rawls said this quite explicitly in his highly influential 1973 book, A Theory of Justice. To progressives, income or wealth inequality is morally problematic no matter the reason for the inequality because our natural endowments, inclinations, character, family, 
and social background are undeserved. If an individual works hard or smart in school, employment, or enterprise, and is therefore better compensated than others, progressives regard that as unfair because the intelligence and work ethic involved came largely from genetic, family, or social factors. Using various principles, guideposts, or definitions, usually involving one of many competing conceptions of equality, fairness, or social justice, they seek to have government enforce a predetermined distribution of economic goods. This view has its roots in the works of August Comte, Karl Marx, R.H. Taney, and others, and more recently in the work of John Rawls, Amartya Sen, Ronald Dworkin, Brian Berry, and others. Individual effort and merit are largely irrelevant to the progressive or socialist conception of economic justice. The progressive view entails rejecting either the reality or the importance of our freedom, our individuality, and many of the most important aspects of our humanity. Our character, our integrity, our prudence, and our dispositions to work, to think, to take risks, or even to love our families, for example, are not, in their view, relevant to what is just a just economic distribution. Progressives view people as cogs in a machine, as automatons. They reject the idea that people should be different and that merit, achievement, striving, learning, risk-taking, prudence, and character should be relevant to economic outcomes. The left-wing conception of justice is fairness in Rawls' formulation, and fairness as equality of outcomes is inconsistent with common sense and ordinary ethics. And psychological studies show that neither children nor adults have an aversion to inequality. What they value instead is fairness, and they don't define fairness the way that progressives do. Now, a few words about family. Progressives and socialists regard the family as an impediment to equality of opportunities. Rawls, for example, wrote, quote, furthermore, the principle of fair opportunity can only be imperfectly carried out at least as long as the institution of the family exists. Karl Marx explicitly advocated abolition of the family as an obstacle to communist society. He considered the, quote, hallowed correlation of parent and child, end quote, to be, quote, bourgeois claptrap. Now, the next speaker in our series is Ed Fezzer on February 11th, and he'll talk about this in greater detail from a natural law perspective. But families are critical institutions to building a healthy and prosperous society. They educate the young, provide invaluable social capital, and impart what Hayek would call tacit knowledge. Now, the second volume of Hayek's Law, Legislation, and Liberty is called The Mirage of Social Justice. In it, he said that social justice, quote, does not belong to the category of error, but to that of nonsense, like the term a moral stone. To summarize Hayek's insights, the proponents of social justice articulate no rules of just conduct that would lead to social justice. Or stated differently, social justice rests on the odd idea that every single individual can behave in a just or moral manner, yet we can and probably will have social injustice. This is a paradoxical, if not incoherent, result. Let me give you sort of an example. Imagine that you have 
a musician who's highly popular, and he sells his CDs for $20 a pop. And he sells millions of CDs. So he's going to become very wealthy by selling his CDs. Is it unethical that he sold his CDs? No. Is it unethical that we bought his CDs? No. But it results in the inequality, and necessarily will. Uh, I, in effect, stole that from Robert Nozick's Wilt Chamberlain example, but nobody knows who Wilt Chamberlain is anymore. <laughs> um, you have similar examples throughout society. People uh, earn income by offering goods that people want to buy, obviously professional athletes, but also people that sell other goods, whether it's software or anything you can imagine. So social justice rests on a proposition that people can universally behave ethically, but somehow it leads to injustice. Now, Michael Novak, who is a Catholic philosopher, uh, I think once put it very well when he said, quote, whole books and, treati and treatises have been written about social justice without ever offering a definition. It is allowed to float in the air as if everyone will recognize an instance of it when it appears. The vagueness seems indispensable. The minute begins, one begins to define social justice, one runs into embarrassing intellectual difficulties. It becomes, most often, a term of art whose operational meaning is we need a law against that. In other words, it becomes an instrument of ideological intimidation for the purpose of gaining the power of legal coercion. Now, at least one of the speakers in our series disagreed. John Tomasi, author of Free Market Fairness, largely accepts Rawlsian ideas about justice, but he argued that free markets best achieve that justice. Conservatives, classical liberals, and libertarians hold that an unplanned distribution is just if the distribution is the result of individuals acting freely in accordance with just rules. The core of their understanding of what constitutes just rules is respect for voluntary exchange and private property. Individuals may and should act on their conception of merit or justice, but the government should not enforce a predetermined distribution of income or wealth. Individual effort, merit, preferences, character, values, and freedom matter morally. Conservatives, classical liberals, and libertarians celebrate the fact that people have unequal or diverse talents, preferences, risk averseness, attachments, and cultures, because these are, the, are central to the rich tapestry of an enlightened, humane, and prosperous society. These differences inevitably will lead to economic differences, and those differences are not objectionable. Now, let me take just a minute to define my terms. By conservative, I mean a philosophy that values an ordered liberty and traditional values. In Britain, this would mean writers like Edmund Burke, Michael Ochot, and Roger Scruton, who was also uh, a guest in this series. In the United States, it would mean authors like Russell Kirk, Richard Reaver, and, and Robert Nisbet. In terms of the founders, it would mean federalists like John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, for example. By classical liberal, I mean a philosophy rooted in the Lockean tradition, informed by Adam Smith. Prominent 20th century proponents of classical liberalism would include Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek. 
In terms of the founding generation, it would mean Democratic Republicans like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, or George Mason. The conservative movement today encompasses both traditional conservatives and classical liberals. Now, by libertarian, I mean a philosophy that views government's sole function, or nearly so, as protecting the life, liberty, and property of its citizens, and a commitment to the libertarian non-aggression principle. Leading proponents of this view would include Robert Nozick, Ayn Rand, and Murray Rothbard. Now, it's become clear to me over the years that these views form a continuum. Each view represents a constellation of principles and commitments that's recognizable, but there's no single bright line test that definitely demarcates a conservative from a classical liberal from a libertarian. In fact, there are many varieties of each philosophy, but any conservative, classical liberal or libertarian, is much more committed to liberal than our progressives or socialists. Now, most conservatives, classical liberals or libertarians, don't find it to be a particular moral concern that a middle-income person has a lower income and less wealth than an affluent professional, or that a millionaire has a lower income and less wealth than a billionaire. Relative wealth or income ratios don't cause them anxiety. They're not ideologically committed to some predetermined government-enforced distributional outcome. To borrow libertarian Robert Nozick's memorable descriptions, they re reject the view that wealth or income is like manna from heaven to be distributed by the state, and they, re and they re generally are okay with capitalist acts among consenting adults. They, re they prefer unequal prosperity to equal stagnation and poverty. They support fairness, not equality of outcomes, and don't regard inequality of outcome as fair or just. Instead, they seek equal protection of law or equal justice under the law. What conservatives, classical liberals, and some libertarians find to be a moral concern is not income or wealth inequality per se, but poverty. Because poverty hinders the ability of the poor to flourish and to lead a fulfilling life. Public policies, private charity, education, and other initiatives to address poverty and create opportunity are warranted. But the pursuit of economic equality is not. The objective of, the, of these efforts should be to alleviate poverty and create self-sufficiency rather than dependency so that people may thrive. And existing government programs fail to meet those objectives. After millennia, where most people lived in grinding poverty, and even the affluent lived lives that would be considered hard today, free enterprise led to the great enrichment a 30-fold improvement in the material well-being of humanity that has lifted many billions of people out of poverty and allowed for longer, more fulfilling lives. In contrast, there's no more reliable means of driving a large proportion of a country's population into poverty than to seriously pursue implementation of a socialist agenda and economic equality. Now, poverty is not a function of economic equality. Economic policy, narrowly construed, can have a substantial impact on opportunity and the incomes of the broader public, but typically is not the cause of long-term poverty. Sometimes people are poor because of chronic mental or physical conditions or infirmities that make work difficult or impossible. Other poverty is driven by counterproductive behavior 
It causes people not to thrive, including substance abuse, failing to graduate from high school, having children before marriage, or failure to seek work. Furthermore, existing government policies are ineffective or cause rather than alleviate poverty. Government policies that cause poverty include creating a poverty track, trap excuse me, so that working makes little or no economic sense for low-income persons, making it illegal for less skilled workers to work, creating barriers to employment, raising costs and prices, slowing economic growth, and impeding opportunity generally. Although work is both economically, socially, and psychologically uplifting, government policies systematically discourage work. Labor force participation rates, particularly for men, have dropped precipitously. Now, the necessary price of pursuing the egalitarian vision of equality of outcomes or equality of condition is an ever greater concentration of power in the hands of politicians and ever-growing coercion. Is political or bureaucratic control of the economy somehow ethically superior to an economic system based on freedom of choice and peaceful, voluntary, and mutually beneficial exchange among free people and markets? Or is a system that provides financial reward based on the values of the politically powerful ethically superior to the market system, where financial success is the function of successfully serving ordinary people providing the goods and services that they value? Those who value freedom and fear concentrated power would answer no. Only those that have a high degree of faith in the ethics and efficacy of government and bureaucracies should answer yes. The adoption of any set of policies achieving anything approaching actual economic equality would so alter incentives, destroy productivity, and impede the ability of society to develop the information dynamism necessary to meet the needs and wants of its people. The general impoverishment is the known result. In other words, economic equality would dramatically reduce the size of the economic pie that egalitarians seek to divide equally. The adoption of such policies is unjust because it's demonstrable that such policies, when actually pursued, impoverish entire countries. Venezuela and North Korea are contemporary examples. Maoist China and Soviet Union are large-scale historical examples. There are many dozens of other, about 70 by my account. And to deny this historic or evident historical fact requires a willing blindness to impoverish people in pursuit of an objectively destructive utopian ideology is unjust. Even more moderate attempts to reduce economic equality, such as those associated with modern welfare state progressivism and mixed economy social democracy, have a significant cost in terms of reducing incomes and social welfare. Greece is a nice contemporary example, but it should also be mentioned that the socialist success stories, so-called, in the Nordic countries are nothing of the sort. The Nordic countries have a higher freedom score on the Heritage Index of Economic Freedom than the United States, or in two cases, they're just behind. Now, let me talk a minute about equality. Philosopher, economist, and Nobel laureate Amartya Sen has written in his book, Inequality Reexamined, that, quote, every norm of theory of social justice that has received support and advocacy in recent times seems to demand equality of something, something that is regarded as particularly important in this theory. But equality of what? 
income, annual or lifetime. Consumption, annual or lifetime. Wealth, resources, welfare. Happiness or utility. Capability, sense choice. Opportunity, power or influence. And dignity are all candidates. Now, should the state-mandated distribution of goods, however defined, take into account different needs, abilities, and preferences of individuals? Is egalitarianism concerned with the fair allocation of holdings among persons at the start of life, or simply ensuring uh, that we have equal life outcomes? Do choice and responsibility matter in this question? And what is the proper egalitarian metric? Now, one aside for the economists in the room, the Gini coefficient is the most common measure of equality. And I won't get into details of how we calculate it, although I thought I might. But the bottom line is, if if uh, you have a number of zero, uh, it's totally equal. If you have a number of one, it's totally unequal. So I wanted to do a little thought experiment. And I ran the numbers, which, by the way, is a monumental pain, um, on a society where everyone who is the same age receives precisely the same income, but you get an annual raise to reflect the fact that you're more experienced and more knowledgeable. So if everyone gets an annual raise for their entire working life of 5% and then has a retirement income, you get the Gini coefficient of France. If everyone gets an annual raise of 7%, you get the Gini coefficient of the United States. What does this tell you? That a huge part of the measured inequality is a function of, of older people being better and more experienced people being better compensated than young, inexperienced people. So, now, another question, of course, is equality of whom? Citizens? Legal residents? All residents? And is it in a particular nation? or a particular state, a particular region, or is it everyone in the entire world? Well, there are advocates for any of these particular points of view. Uh, but if you, for example, had an utterly equal income throughout the United States, people in New York would live a lot less well than people in Mississippi. Right? There are a massive number of utterly intractable problems once you start trying to put content in this progressive or socialist idea. Now, <clears throat> because they work more and are more productive and live in a country that's less hostile to free enterprise than most, Americans have a consumption level 49% higher than other industrialized countries, according to the OECD. And of course, many, many multiples of the worldwide average. Now, should the American people, in the interest of economic justice, be required to shift vast amounts of their resources to other countries. And if you actually think that nationalism is somehow a terrible idea, uh, the answer to that, and you're a progressive, presumably the answer to that would be yes. But I'd like to see them explain that. Now, I really don't think that we should continue to let progressives and socialists and, and their politicians off the hook. They need to be forced to move beyond platitudes and actually answer questions like equality of what, equality of who, how measured, why, and then also explain 
I mean, young people today seem to think that socialism is this new, exciting prospect and seem to be utterly uninformed about the fact that, in point of fact, it's an old, tried, and failed ideology that's been tried at least 70 times, and the record of socialism is unblemished by success. And let me address the question of how we should think about equality. Uh, the United States Declaration of Independence, of course, states that all men are created equal. And the 14th Amendment to the Constitution provides that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. The principle of equal justice under law has roots in antiquity. The Athenian Pericles, in his famous funeral oration, put forth a version of it, as did Aristotle in his ethics. It rests on the idea that we're all God's children, the principle of self-ownership and shared dignity. John Locke argued that all men are by nature equal, and even equal rights that must be respected, but they must also respect the equal rights. Of others. Edmund Burke, oh, probably the uh, father in some sense of modern conservatism, said that in this partnership, by which he meant civil society, all men have equal rights, but not to equal things. Now, on economic equality, the founders were clear. For example, James Madison in the Federalist Papers, number 10, wrote, the diversity in the faculties of men from which the rights of property originate is not less an insuperable obstacle to a uniformity of interest. The protection of these faculties is the first object of government. From the protection of different and unequal faculties of acquiring property, the possession of different degrees and kinds of property immediately results. And from the influence of these, on the sentiments and views of the respective proprietors ensues a division of society into different interests and parties. Theoretical politicians who have patronized this species of government have erroneously supposed that by reducing mankind to perfect equality in their political rights, they would at the same time be perfectly equalized and assimilated in their possessions, their opinions, and their passions. Now, libertarians, classical liberals, and conservatives generally support equal political rights, moral equality, and equality before the law. Most also support equality of opportunity, usually understood as freedom from arbitrary limits on the individual's ability to pursue lawful aims. Conservatives and classical liberals, not libertarians so much, also typically support publicly funded education to advance equality of opportunity and Republican self-government. Conservatives and classical liberals are aware of the importance of strong families, a robust civil society, and sound cultural norms, and the role they play in fostering opportunities and the character formation necessary for pursuing opportunities. This is why they oppose policies that would weaken the family and civil society and defend a culture that is supportive of traditional bourgeois, or middle-class virtues. Let me close by talking a little bit about socialism. <clears throat> Limited government proponents 
do a reasonable job of explaining the adverse economic consequences or the destructive practical effect of progressive and socialist policies. Although I think we need to do more. Progressive and socialist ideologies have a wide range of deeply unattractive moral or ethical implications as well. And if you were to listen to the news these days or read the Washington Post and New York Times, you would think that the only moral alternative is to pursue ever greater economic equality. So we need to do a better job and a sustained job of explaining the moral implications and explaining why socialism and its progressive or social democratic cousins are deeply unjust. I made a list of nine reasons why socialism uh, is unjust. Its moral failures can be summarized as follows. It treats unequal circumstances equally. It systematically empowers politicians, bureaucrats, and the politically powerful at the expense of individual freedom and choice. It denigrates our human dignity and ability to flourish. It wastes scarce resources. It's a poor steward of scarce resources. It makes charity and compassion difficult and increases dependency and reduces self-sufficiency. It harms voluntary associations, civil society, and family. It stifles dissent and free speech and promotes a deadening bureaucratic uniformity. It endorses and formalizes counterproductive envy and resentment, and it demonstrably reduces a society's standard of living and dramatically increases poverty. Well, I know that this last point is arguably a consequentialist point, but given the clear record that socialism has of impoverishing entire countries, or at least reducing the standard of living of people living in that country, hundreds of millions, potentially billions of people, knowingly adopting such policies is, in my view, unethical. Now let me sort of talk about the converse the moral superiority of free enterprise. Free enterprise rests on voluntary cooperation among free people, whether as workers, managers, investors, or customers, and rejects coercion. It empowers ordinary people rather than politicians, bureaucrats, and the politically well-connected. It allows people to author their own lives, to choose their own calling, to innovate, to create, to be different, and to flourish. It leads to dynamism and an improved standard of living, has lifted more people out of poverty than any other system. It encourages the sound stewardship of scarce resources. It affords the dignity of self-sufficiency rather than offering the corrosive lethargy of dependence. It rewards work, prudence, thrift, diligence, creative, creativity, and innovation. It leaves room for and does not seek to control voluntary associations, civil society, charity, and the family and society. And it leaves room for people to lead different kinds of lives, to be different, to dissent, and to speak freely. And I'd be glad to get into the details of all those uh, during the question and answer session. Now, conservatives, classical liberals, and libertarians need to resist the left's relentless effort to redefine our political vocabulary so that words like fairness, justice, equality, and freedom mean only what the left wants them to mean. We need to aggressively defend the traditional non-socialist meanings of these terms because they're central about how we think about ourselves and our polity. The pursuit of economic equality will lead to a poorer country, both in the sense 
that more people will be poor, and that most people will have a lower standard of living. A serious pursuit of economic equality will cause massive suffering. Economic equality is unjust because it treats unequal circumstances equally and because it systematically empowers politicians, bureaucrats, and the politically powerful at the expense of individual freedom and choice. It makes government, rather than ourselves, the authors of our lives. The egalitarian ideologies denigrate our humanity, dignity, and ability to flourish but not by, don, bleh, excuse me, by denying um, the importance of central aspects of our humanity, including our willingness to work, our willingness to learn, to take risks, to act prudently, and so on. Socialist or progressive policies increase dependency and reduce self-sufficiency, leading to a destructive cycle and ruining lives. Socialist and progressive policies endorse and formalize counterproductive enmity and resentment. In a final analysis, economic equality is not a worthy objective. It is, in fact, a destructive and unethical objective that will materially reduce social well-being and crush the ability of the American people to flourish. Thank you. Uh, I would be glad to take any questions. We have a gentleman with a microphone. If you have a question, uh, please raise your hand. And when you ask the question, please state your name and uh, institutional affiliation. This gentleman here. Hi. So I'm an intern here in the Foreign Policy Defense Department. And my question is, you talked at length about um, inequality, obviously, um, and one, one of the main issues that I often have when I'm discussing it with liberals is, is there a, you know, is there ever, is there ever too much inequality? I mean, where, where does the, where does one draw the line? Because some countries are extremely unequal and that obviously is not good. So where do we draw the line as conservatives to the point where inequality, excessive inequality is bad? Conservatives support equality, political equality, moral equality, and so on. Down I mean, economic. Economic equality is not a worthy objective. It's The objective should be to help poor people lift themselves out of poverty. And in, in cases where they can't because they, they have a, a mental or physical infirmity, uh, provide for them. But it's absolutely of no moral concern that Bill Gates made a lot of money improving all of our lives by making PCs work better. It's of absolutely no moral concern that a professional athlete makes a lot of money because we watch him on TV or uh, go to the, the games. It's of absolutely no moral concern that uh, Bono makes a lot of money because people buy his CDs. This isn't a problem. In fact, for a lot of reasons, uh, it's highly desirable because the, the profit motive draws capital and resources into places where it's needed it creates incentives. It also is central to the dynamism that makes free market economies so much more effective than socialist economies. If you think about it, if you do what uh, AOC wants uh, and basically tax any significant wealth away, uh, then a lot of entrepreneurship would simply disappear. Because why do you want to take the huge risk of investing years of your life and perhaps your life savings 
uh, into a company uh, if there's no upside. You won't do it. Right? So there's a lot of practical reasons, but the ethical reason is, you know, there, the, the core ethics is voluntary exchange. If people through voluntary exchange, uh, you party with $20 so you can listen to the musician's CD. Uh, that is ethical behavior. It's moral behavior. And if that happens to result in an unequal outcome, so be it. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. I, I enjoyed your presentation. Robert Lean, I'm a member of the public. I'm retired. <clears throat> I don't claim to truly understand all the economic theories you're discussing, but it seems to me that you're really urging a return to the Gilded Age, to laissez-faire uh, type of economic system that uh, is unrestrained. Uh, and we saw the problems that created. Uh, you're, are you opposed to the antitrust laws? I guess that's my I, question. Personally, I don't know what the Heritage Foundation's official line is on antitrust law. I have ambiguous, mixed feelings about antitrust law. Um, but let me, let me sort of deal with the core of your question. Um, there were a lot of problems with the so-called Gilded Age uh, in the sense that we saw a high degree of crony capitalism just like we do today where government interfered on behalf of large and politically powerful businesses. And in that sense, and, and you saw uh, a slogan in 19th century politics called Special Privileges for None that Heritage has echoed over the past a uh, few years. And in that sense, I would be very much opposed to uh, the special privileges or crony capitalist aspects of that period in our economic history. On the other hand, that was a period where the standard of living of the American people rose radically. And the left always likes to forget about that. We went, I mean, look, you go back to I happen to live near Gunston Hall, where George Mason lived. George Mason uh, is the reason we have a Bill of Rights and a Constitution. I admire the man. Um, but he was also, at the time, one of the wealthiest people in North America. But his home today would be condemned as uninhabitable. Right? He didn't have electricity. He didn't have running water. Right? And so on down the line. In many respects, the poorest people in our country today live better than the richest people in that period. And the reason is what the dynamism and of capitalism and the innovation of capitalism that brought us railroads so that farmers could get grain from the middle of nowhere to the cities and therefore get a decent price for it instead of being subsistence farmers. All right? Or banks, which allowed capital to get all over the country instead of just be in New York. And so on down the line, all of these robber barons, uh, did tremendous things to help the country grow and the standard of living of ordinary people go up. Uh, John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. I mean, oil became vastly cheaper because of Standard Oil. And therefore, automobiles were, were economically possible. So many aspects of the transportation revolution are a function of these people. That said, I... I uh, think that there are genuine public goods where government should be involved. 
that government should regulate to make sure the markets work appropriately, that property rights are well-defined, that fraud is policed, uh, and, and so on down the line. The government has a role in terms of funding infrastructure. Now, I also believe that government has a role in funding education, paying for it, not providing it, and so on the grounds of uh, equal opportunity, but also Republican self-government. You, you really can't have Republican self-government without an educated population. And lastly, I do believe in, in a safety net, uh, but a safety net that works. The aim of the safety net should not be to employ bureaucrats. The aim of the safety net should be to move people out of poverty and into a successful, normal life. <clears throat> and that's not what we do today. Uh, the, the, the war on poverty has been an abject failure, uh, and, and we need to, to, to change how we do things. Here. Hi there. My name is Joe Casais. I'm an intern here at Heritage at the Herman Center. And uh, my question is, is there a role for certain protectionist policies in a free market? Um, Tucker Carlson brought up in his book, The Ship of Fools, that the largest employer of American males with high school degrees is the trucking industry. So is it immoral to block the voluntary exchanges associated with the self-driving auto industry in order to protect the free market from creating a large discontent population like the ones that brought about socialist revolutions a century ago? Well, in terms of trade, it's been, I think, well established as a matter of economics that for a very long time, notwithstanding the, the latest craze for protectionist policies, uh, that it's it's good for both parties, if you, both parties in the sense of the individuals engaging in the transaction, but also good for both countries. Uh, but if you if you think about uh, free trade in in the most basic terms, it's two willing individuals. One parts with their money, the other parts with their goods. And the reason they did so is they both thought they'd be better off after the transaction than before. Right? Another way to think about it is if you think that protectionism makes sense then maybe we should protect ourselves from those uh, Marylanders up the road. Right? Uh, so we'll, we'll put trade barriers between Maryland and D.C. Uh, to protect our local D.C. people. Uh, of course, one of the reasons the United States is such a prosperous country and has been for a long time is because it's a large free trade zone. People in Maryland can trade with people from Virginia, can trade with people from California, uh, in general, without any tariff-type barriers. <clears throat> As a matter of ethics, the question becomes, uh, you know, is, is the government somehow entitled to tell you you can't trade with somebody and engage in a mutually beneficial transaction simply because they're a resident of another country? And the answer to that with certain qualifications is no. Uh, the qualifications would include, for example, national security qualifications, so that uh, an American couldn't sell defense-relevant technology to the People's Republic of China or, or so on down the line. Hey, David. Uh, Jim Watts, Pacific Summit Capital. Kind of, kind of curious to get your feelings and input on the concentration of wealth, I'm thinking especially Silicon Valley being an ex-Californian myself, and we see companies like 
like Google and Facebook allegedly abusing their intellectual property for political purposes, they're not just building better cars or drilling better wells and producing more oil, but it's become very political. And I'm wondering, are we on kind of a slippery slope there? And what's the future going to hold in hold for us? Well, I mean, there, there's uh, several different, I guess, aspects to, to, to that. One is uh, a, a lot of uh, folks have, have made their money in perfectly honorable ways by offering uh, software or other uh, technologies that benefit the public immeasurably. Um, sometimes I have to remind interns around here there was a day before the Internet. Uh, in fact, it, it shows up in research. If anything before about 1995, you actually have to go find books in a library. Right? Um, but uh, others have been, you know, uh, crony capitalists writ large. Uh, Elon Musk is, is an obvious example. Uh, if it wasn't for the government subsidies for electric vehicles, uh, Tesla would, would never get off the ground. Uh, and most of the other activities involved dealing with government. <clears throat> in terms of concentration, I guess, as I mentioned in response to the first question, I personally have uh, a certain set of mixed feelings about antitrust law. Uh, there are certainly plenty of free market people. Uh, Chicago, where I went to school, is, has a lot of strong proponents of aggressive enforcement of antitrust law. Um, but antitrust law at some uh, pretty basic level is deeply incoherent. And let me explain why I say that. Now, if you have prices higher than your competitor, then you could be accused of exercising monopoly power and your business should be broken up. If you have prices lower than your competitor, then you're engaging in predatory pricing and you should be sanctioned. And if you have prices exactly the same as your competitor, then you're obviously engaging in collusion, right? So no matter whether you have prices higher, lower, or the same as your competitor, antitrust law gives a weapon to government to go after you. And, and that, that's one of the reasons why I have such a deep ambivalence towards antitrust. Um, there's a lot, a lot of subtlety uh, in there. I am not an antitrust guy, although I've, I've read a fair amount about it. But most of the Silicon Valley people made their money honorably by offering a service that people value and want to buy or use. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh, first of all, thank you for your speech. I'm Hayen from Center for International Private Enterprise. And I just wanted to ask you that if, if conservatives believe in the equal opportunity, um, and if the equal opportunity is in the law, is it for real that poor people get the opportunity to get, uh, to, I don't know, pursue their merit and preferences? Well, wouldn't it be, uh, for, wouldn't it be efficient, I don't know, effective for them to have a certain uh, protectionist um, support for the government in order for them to progress, uh, to pursue their merits in terms of education and everything? Well, equality of political rights and, and uh, equal moral station and uh, is something that does not divide conservative classical liberals or libertarians. What we should do in terms of equality of opportunity does. Um, 
and there are differing perspectives on it, different meanings to the term. Uh, I think that one of the most central things we can do is provide a good education to people so that they can succeed in uh, a modern economy. And our school systems are failing. Uh, someone once said, and I think they're absolutely right, that the greatest civil rights issue that we face today are our schools. They're government-run schools, and they're doing a pathetic job of teaching people how to read and write and, and have the skills necessary to succeed uh, in, in a modern society. And that's something that needs to be rectified. Now, uh, Milton Friedman proposed, and Heritage supports, a voucher system so that parents can uh, take the voucher and, and go choose a school. Uh, whether it's a government-run school or a private-run school. And that competition is likely to drive out the schools that are notably inferior and allow low-income students to achieve the same kind or similar kind of results as uh, middle-income or higher-income people that currently send their kids to private or parochial schools. And I think that's a central part of it. Another part of it are, is welfare reform and reform to the many dozens of poverty programs that we have. The, the central point there is we don't, we shouldn't pay, reward people for counterproductive behavior, and we should encourage productive behavior in, in the sense of, of desirable behavior, particularly work. And throughout the welfare program edifice that we have today, we basically encourage people not to work. And work uh, is Firstly, no one that works full-time uh, is, is going to be poor very long because once they develop a record of showing up on time and doing a good job, they'll at least enter the lower middle class. Um, and uh, Brookings and the Urban Institute as well have done some, some good work on this. I mean, basically, I, I think of among people, I forget the precise numbers, but among people who get a high school degree, get a job, and don't have children until they're married, the poverty rate is something like 2%. It might be 3 I don't know. 97% uh, of the people that follow those simple rules uh, succeed, at least in the sense of having a middle-class standard of living. Yes, sir. Do you believe that... Uh uh, ch a child of the people on the 99% lower income have the same opportunity that the children of the 1%. Sure uh, is. A few days ago, there has been a, a, a report, of course, I believe in Europe, that uh, uh, 26 people are adding two and a half billion dollars a day to their assets while two three and a half billion people that uh, half a uh, population of the whole world mm -hmm. are losing 500 million a day all right let, let me That's, let me address it the, the short answer is no peter in general people who have uh, rich, well-educated, affluent parents do better and have better opportunities than poor people. And we need to try to rectify that. One of them, one of the ways to do that is to fix the school system. But there are others, right? But the, 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 
we have less social mobility than we used to. And one of the reasons for that is government is destroying social mobility systematically and on a regular basis. It does it in two ways. Uh, one is it basically rewards uh, on, uh, uh, people for not working, so people choose not to work. Um, and in many cases, for poor people, it's irrational to work. Going to work will actually cost them money because of the welfare state. But the other way we do it is if you go to the right schools or have the right buddies, government gives you money, right? Billions or at least hundreds of millions of dollars. That's what the crony capitalist state is all about, right? And you see that all the time. One of the things that I hope to do is to put together a systematic catalog of corporate welfare. Uh, but there's reason to believe that actual checks written to businesses is in the neighborhood of $100 billion a year. But that's only a small part of it. The government guarantees corporate debt, uh, both in, uh, in, in, and in effect takes on the credit risk of both corporations but also their, their customers. So, for example, we had a big fight over Export-Import Bank. And what that bank basically does is help out dependent corporations, you know, like Boeing, and and then says, okay, we're going to guarantee that you get paid Boeing uh, by your customers and if and, and the taxpayers on the hook. But you can also look at the late, latest financial crisis with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? You can look at farm price supports. You can look at the various trade deals that are, are being done. There are literally, it's a staggering amount of government involvement and, and, and crony capitalism today. And that's, it's become highly profitable to seek government money, government bailouts, and so on and so forth. Um, and in that sense, I think it's no real accident that the ever-increasing role of government has led to less social mobility, both in a sense of government helping out those who already have money, and then government-run schools and government-run programs destroying the upward mobility of the bottom quintile. Steve, and then we'll go here. Uh, Steve Anton, Tax Foundation. Uh, there was a question earlier about protectionism and trade and who would be hurt if we moved toward more free trade. But isn't part of the problem that we aren't there? We started with a whole bunch of protectionist systems in the world, and, and moving from that to free trade is, is hard. But if we were already at free trade, some of these dislocations wouldn't be there to begin with, uh, and uh, we would be far less call for going into a protectionist system uh, because it's the adjustment that hurts. Now, I think government have set up a situation where there appear to be problems that wouldn't be there if the governments hadn't caused them in the first place. Well, I mean, as I was just talking about, there's lots of problems that are caused by government. I mean, at some level, the, the, the history of the past 50 years is government caused a problem, people complain, so the solution that is proffered is more government, which causes another problem, so the solution that's proffered is another government intervention, and we have a mess. And trade is no is no exception. Um, but in general, reducing tariffs and non-tariff barriers is welfare-enhancing uh, for both the individuals involved and for the, the governments involved. 
a question back here. Robert Lean again. Uh, you would indicate. I, 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 I would think from what you said that you would have thought that the Harpus Mortgage Assistance Program was a wrong policy. But isn't it? If you say that, don't you also have to say that income tax policy, which encourages home ownership and benefits home ownership, is also improper? I'm not familiar with the specific. Uh, program you mentioned, but the, the mortgage interest deduction is not a tax preference. If mortgage interest should be deductible if it's taxable to the recipient. If mortgage interest is not deductible, it shouldn't be taxable to the, the recipient. Uh, there needs to be a symmetry uh, in, in how we treat it. And this is sort of easy to see. Let's think of it as in a sales tax, mortgage interest isn't deductible, but it's not taxable because it's not relevant to the taxable result. That would be true in other systems like a credit invoice value added tax or goods and services tax like the Europeans and, well, every other OECD country has. Uh, in a well-constructed income tax, uh, mortgage interest and all interest would be deductible and taxable. But you can also go to something like the Hall-Rabushka flat tax where interest is simply not relevant to the taxable result and it's neither taxable nor deductible. The key point there is to have it, have the symmetry. All right, well, thank you very much for coming. And the next event is uh, Ed Fezzer uh, speaking on socialism in the family, I believe, on February 11th. Thanks again.